Hello, and welcome to DigiDay's History of AdTech, a special four-part series from the DigiDay podcast, examining the disruption in the digital media space from the 1990s to the current day. My name is Ronan Shields, and I work here on the reporting desk at DigiDay. My name is Seb Joseph, and I'm the senior news editor here at DigiDay. In this episode, we will take a look at how the media industry's excitement over the rise of ad tech has been tempered by the need to treat data responsibly. This is a trend that became more prevalent in the early 2010s and underpins some of the industry's major contemporary challenges. Today, we are joined by Anna Milicevic from Sparrow Advisors, one of the sector's most respected consultants that helps businesses understand their privacy obligations. Anna is here to discuss how the digital media industry has responded to privacy requirements throughout her decades-long experience when she has advised clients on challenges brought about by the rise of legislation such as GDPR and CCPA. Anna, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hey, Ronan. Hey, Seb. So, uh, obviously, this is uh, the fourth installment of uh, four-part series. And in the earlier episodes, uh, we have been speaking to quite a lot of people about the excitement of uh, digital media and the opportun- commercial opportunities that it poses to them. But it doesn't seem that uh, there's been a lot of conversation around the obligations that companies that want to take advantage of these opportunities uh, have when it comes to using consumer data. And right now we are at a time that we have uh, GDPR has been in enforcement since 2018. It has racked up over 4.5 billion in fines. And we are now at a point where we have 13 US states have a a patchwork of uh, privacy laws that is indeed causing a lot of uh, anxiety within the industry. I was just wondering, uh, Anna, if you could perhaps just help us appreciate when did privacy become a more prevalent part of the industry-wide conversation? I mean, is it something that we have just uh, missed out in the last sort of couple of episodes? Or is it something that started to come to a fore more as legislation such as GDPR came into being? I think for me, it's always been a case of technology moving faster than guardrails that you would normally want to put around this technology. And uh, especially in the U.S. market, we have a long history of using data in marketing. Um, When you think about what direct mail uses, it's a lot of PII, a lot of really highly specific segments. And so for me, looking at it historically that way, Digital advertising and privacy in digital advertising seemed less like an issue because here you were largely dealing with anonymized folks. It was not as intrusive as, you know, the Department of Motor Vehicles selling your home address to somebody. At least this is how it evolved in my head. But um, in other global regions, the perception of what's permissible and what's indeed welcome marketing is very different than it is in the U.S. market. And I think it's no coincidence that we, we've we seen GDPR and before it, the European Cookie Directive of 2011, I believe, uh, kind of be these first pieces of legislation that started looking at privacy and and trying to push back on it. And so I think a lot of it is individual sensibilities. Um, 
from a U.S. market perspective, as long as there's a trade-off of some kind and the consumer feels like they are either getting good information or getting something in return for the data that they're they're seeding, that seems to be acceptable. But as uh, we've seen with the, uh, the ra- rapid development and expansion of digital advertising, um, a lot of this happens in the background. And so your average consumer isn't necessarily aware of how data is being collected. And that, again, is not just limited to digital advertising. It's to um, all manner of data-driven marketing in general. And um, this is my favorite cocktail party trick where I you know, usually sit down and explain to people who are not in advertising how some of this stuff works and just you know, see them change color in front of me and go like, no, they can't do that, can they? <laughs> so I think it's been a, um, calling it an afterthought would probably be the best description out there. And I think it's because we've been able to technologically do things that we didn't really stop to think whether they should be done that way is, is how I explain it to myself and, you know, to folks who will listen. <laughs> mm. It was funny you mentioned your uh, sort of a dinner party trick. Uh, wasn't that this kind of the same genesis of uh, how CCPA came into place? There was a uh, allegedly yes. a developer from Google told a, a multi-millionaire from, um, I think it was the real estate space, just exactly uh, what they could find out. And uh, it was he who started to agitate for what eventually became CCPA. I believe that's the lore. Um, yes. <laughs> I did not it know is, that. It wow. is. Yeah, that, that, is, that has been officially confirmed by uh, several attorneys. Uh, and I think Google's <laughs> probably quite mad at whoever that senior engineer was who, <laughs> you know, loose lips that night. <laughs> loose lips sink ships. Yeah. <laughs> Lo- loose lips lead to, to regulation, I think. <laughs> well, to, to that point, do, Anna, uh, you, you mentioned, uh, oh, well, we just mentioned two of the big pieces of privacy legislation, which I think, you know, as we are in 2023 while recording and segueing into 2024, anybody in the digital media landscape should know. I, um, you know, I always, always hesitate to use that word, but I think if you don't know, if you're in this industry and you don't know that those terminologies, you are probably in a big bit of trouble. But do you think uh, more in the public awareness and in the popular mindset um, that it's the public scandals which they frequently get referred to as because they are well just they are quite regularly referred to as scandals like the Snowden files in 2010 we had the Cambridge Analytica um well it was, it was that was all about 2016 but I think it was more in 2017 the Cambridge Analytica scandal came to light and other issues in between times would be uh the 2014 Yahoo uh, hack and there was several other bigger ones, but I think the Yahoo one was has been billed as the biggest data breach in history. Uh, and I'm just interested to know: Do you think scandals such as that they do more to underline the importance of the issue, or from people in the industry, uh, because of that public wide set reaction now that these types of stories are getting onto the front page of the New York Times, etc. It, it, it certainly sets a little bit of a fire um, under certain people's seats. And, um, you know, when you 
would try to talk about data security, even with large companies who have budget, who have security departments. Like you've mentioned a couple of uh, very famous scandals. There were a couple of other data breaches. There was a, the Target data breach, for example, or a large retailer, again, losing not just anonymous, anonymized um, information, but a lot of uh, PII. And so there's usually a pattern to these. There's a you know big public brouhaha, but then because it's very difficult, if, if not impossible, to articulate what the value of the actual damage is, it kind of goes away very quickly. But it does make mostly larger companies perk up a little bit and go, all right, we need to not embarrass ourselves in this way, and we need to be better custodians of our consumer data. And that then in turn tends to kick off uh, larger projects that look at how is this data stored? Are we adhering to uh, common data management practices? Are we kind of checking off all the boxes of, of how to how we're storing and transferring this data? And that in turn kicks off another cycle of innovation in uh, ad tech and ad tech adjacent uh, fields that then helps companies implement better uh, practices around data management. And when when I first started um, tackling data management in advertising, I was shocked at how this is, you know, 2008-2009 how unsophisticated it was because you a data management as a discipline in other spheres and in other industries was very well-defined, well-understood with common best practices. And here we were kind of yee-hawing our way through the wild, wild west of digital advertising, shooting from the hip and, you know, going, oh, let's just put all of this information in a cookie and we don't even have to encrypt it. Why would we do that? Who's going to read a cookie? Ha, 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 kind of. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that that led to some, let's just say, dubious results on the other end. And um, I, I think the first time I saw and I remember any conversation around privacy-related matters was um, right around, I want to say like 2009, the Wall Street Journal, and at the time, um, Emily Steele, who's a, a, a very a well-respected, famous uh, reporter, not just a business reporter, but but kind of a reporter at large, um, wrote this series of a couple of articles. And I remember it was titled something to the effect of like what they know. Um, sounded very ominous. Wasn't really clear who the they were. Um, and it was about how data moves in digital advertising. And, um, you know, this was, we, we, we still didn't have uh, those cookie pop-ups that came in 2011. GDPR wasn't even a thing yet. So, so it, was a, it, it was one of those types of articles that when somebody who is not involved in digital advertising read for the first time, they had that same kind of like, well, wait a minute, can they do that kind of reaction? that um, I'm assuming is exactly what led to um, CCPA's genesis as well. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it was a, a lot of things are moving fast in digital. People don't necessarily understand 
uh, how data exchanges happen or like what is the information that your search engine of choice stores on you after you search for, you know, how to unclog my bathroom or something along those lines. And once you kind of explain it to a normal human, they go, ooh, that's scary. <laughs> I don't want any of that. So it's, a, it's an interesting, um, almost perfect storm <laughs> of opacity and uh, generally no ill intent, just a you know desire to personalize better that often ends up very comical with comical results on the other end to, to consumers. Yeah, that was going to be one of my uh, questions. I guess you've kind of answered it a little bit already. Was it how wide how widespread was understanding of the power of this technology within the industry uh, and the investment community? Probably more to the point because it's the investment community that is really fueling this. Uh, one person whom I spoke to for another sort of installment of this series. Uh, spoke to me about how they were consultants at the time and they would sometimes get drafted in uh, during this era of the early 2010s and, you know, oftentimes would be with a VC and they could just explain to them how the technology works and then they would see these checks being written for substantial sums of money and then just kind of said, my source said to me, it was like, and I'm not really sure they understood quite what they were investing in, you know, as they were writing a check for millions of dollars and it just got handed over and they were just kind of like, oh, okay, all right, I'll just go to my next meeting. Wouldn't be the first or last time, but I think that fundamentally misunderstands how venture capitalists operate. Like they are making a bet on a sector or on a team um, that is, and their ability to execute. And they are looking at different lengths of time that, you know, something might go from being valued at $10 million to being valued at $100 million and they've made their money. So I, I think that's really not doing justice to a lot of the investors in the space. Like we are very fortunate as a space to have a lot of really smart, really engaged people who understand just enough about it to be able to pick good winners. And that's not the case for a lot of technological spaces. And, you know, I, I don't need an investor to understand granularly how pixels move and who fires what and, and whatnot, as long as they understand the business model and they understand what's adding value and, and what looks like it could be a good bet. So I appreciate that. And I think, in ad tech in particular, we tend to lionize people who appear to be technical or talk about very minute technical details and this pixel and this call and blah, blah, blah. And we miss the actual commercial opportunity around it very frequently. And we, we tend to look at the people who speak tech as if they've invented something that nobody else has ever invented. And we downplay the commercial innovations here. When you think about programmatic unlocking the ability to monetize remnant, like this was not money that existed before. This was money that publishers were leaving on the table. And so we would rather talk about pixel firing than saying, well, wait a minute, here's how much additional money this particular innovation unlocked. So anyway, I like to stay on the money side of things. 
um, even though I, I speak the technical side of things. But in general, I think we spend too much time talking about the tech of it and not enough time talking about the commercial innovation that we're also responsible for. Okay. Okay. Well, during this time, there were some, or maybe a lot, of uh, big investments were made. I'm I'm presuming uh, you can help us assess which ones were were the good ones. And uh, some of the investments I'm, I'm referring to are, if we think of 2014, Oracle Block, Blue Kai, uh, a deal that was in the region of 400 million. And that's not to overlook how in 2011, there was a company called Demdex got bought by Adobe. Maybe oh, who know. are they? They sound familiar. <laughs> Maybe you would know something about that. And um, I think the big one at the uh, that I can think of, and I guess this is maybe just me and Seb's personal history, because we tried to break this news story unsuccessfully, but uh, Crux getting bought by Salesforce for 700 million in 2016. Don't know if you remember that episode, Seb. We almost did it. We almost did. <laughs> but um, so and I was just wondering, those big, big bets of we're, as we're moving from the early part of the decade more into the middle segue, just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that. Which ones of those types of investments, and maybe not one of the ones that I just referenced, did you think like, okay, that's big. This is a serious product category now. Yeah, it, it was um, this increasing realization in the space that digital, digitally originating data sets were actionable or all of a sudden through you know, the, the technology layer that uh, companies who build themselves as DMPs at the time had introduced. Um, prior to that, a lot of data that was collected in digital realm was largely used for analytics and um, you know, telling you things that happened on your website in the past. And here through this layer, you could now create a segment and do something about those people. So that's what made it particularly appealing to companies, the traditional software companies like Oracle, like Adobe, um, like Salesforce, who understood the value that this approach to data will bring. And it was interesting how quickly the DMP space went from Hey, here we are. We're a new thing. I think when when you know when when Terry Kowalczyk put out the first uh, Lumascape, um, there we we were a category there, and that kind of made people go, "Oh, what's this? Let, let me look at this here little box." Um, through when Forrester published their first DMP report, within about I think it was about eighteen-ish months or so. Most of the companies that were featured on that first Forrester report were acquired. And, you know, you also had uh, Nielsen coming in, picking up Exolate in addition to this. And that pretty much only left, I think, Lotomy from the original ones who are to this day still remain an independent. And um, the others were all picked off by uh, what were rapidly becoming large marketing stacks and, and companies going into that space. So that created a, a really interesting dynamic, um, made the early investors who put money in this category very happy, proved the point that 
uh, personal data originating from digital channels was worth quite a bit. And then kind of came, well, what's next? How do we turn this into something stickier? How do we seed new companies that could potentially be as successful as uh, the ones from this category? And so that led to a, a lot of conversations around, well, so DMPs are done. Everybody who could buy one has bought one. What now? Ooh, let's start talking more about first-party data as opposed to third-party data and data partnerships and those kinds of things. And that very rapidly led us to uh, CDPs, consumer data platforms, and that kind of the next five-ish years of of innovation um, that followed and that we're still, uh, to, to a large extent, riding today. Um, but but I think it was it was that realization that hey this is a really valuable segment and if I own a marketing stack I need to have this as an integral foundational part of uh, of what I'm taking to market that uh, yeah it was, I think you you'd be hard pressed to find other examples of a legitimate software category being picked off as quickly as that and kind of everybody picking their horse mm. and going, right, we're going to build on top of this now and, and see where it goes. Well, obviously, a lot of that came about the time of uh, 2016, uh, which is when GDPR became passed into law. And um, I mean, it seems like a big kind of shift in the landscape, even though GDPR did not become enforceable until mid-2018, um, but it seemed to uh, sort of seem to signify a shift uh, from this, this sort of Wild West era to an, to one that was a bit more constrained, I guess, and arguably dominated by big tech. And I know this is an area where Seb has, has reported on quite extensively throughout the years. Seb, I don't know if you've got any um, kind of questions you would like to put at Anna at this time? Yeah, I guess during that era, um, a lot of people kind of talk about this idea that legislation kind of caught up with sort of tech. And I guess my, I guess, riposte to that, caveat to that is like, did it though? Because it felt like for better or worse, you know, it was the platforms, not the regulators that have been the ones driving data privacy enforcement. You know, when you look at the tidal waves kind of caused by things like, you know, app tracking transparency, you know, everything that's happened since Google announced, you know, the the death of third-party cookies, when was it, kind of 2020? Um, It feels like those have had a far bigger impact on the market than, you know, the actual regulators in and of themselves. I'm I'm with you there, and I also question where were regulators earlier on in this cycle of media destruction when you know you had what were previously very healthy local premium publisher ecosystems that started to die off when classifieds uh, moved to the internet and kind of stopped being the reliable uh, source of income for a lot of publishers and kind of allowing for platforms to take over 
what that 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 gap that was created by previously vibrant local media ecosystems. I say local because in the U.S. we talk a lot about the disappearance of local media. In other regions, it's you know your the the newspaper of record for your country or for your region. Like they were all hurting economically, um, and regulators weren't really paying attention to any of that at the time. So here we are, it's 2011, cookies are the biggest problem on the internet, and the solution is to shove uh, these big warning um, windows to consumers' faces that talk about cookies and a regular human who doesn't really speak internet or you know, is not technically inclined doesn't know what these things are, nor do they necessarily care. So by the time GDPR rolled around, I, I think it was very much playing catch up to the commercial power that platforms had solidified and that that was it was a little bit of a trying to put the genie back in the bottle and it's you know the wrong bottle you're trying to shove it back into and um you know some of it i think is down to well wait a minute here are all of these mostly american companies who are coming in and taking over a large share of our media ecosystems what can we do to Stop them, or at least define them, um, which is, a, you know, not a great tactic unless you have something else locally grown that can serve that need for consumers. And it just feels like the incentives there are maybe not aligned with the reality of the marketplace. Yes. Yeah. Do we feel like then that at least kind of so far regulation? has been on both sides of the Atlantic, to be fair, it's been more of an enabler for kind of big tech's influence over, you know, the kind of market than an inhibitor to some degree. I, I think so. When you think about how any regulatory um, push first tends to benefit incumbents because the point, they are yeah. the ones with the most resources to be able to sure. ensure some type of compliance. And I, I think that that's exactly what's happening here. It's really mm. you know, making it clearer that it's the walled gardens on t together kind of on, on one side of the ecosystem and then everybody else on the other. And it's a, a bit of an adver adversarial relationship now. That sounds so bleak, Anna. <laughs> it does, isn't it? It's, it's really not not that bad. Jeez. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> in in terms of like coming back to an earlier point as well, like you, when you were talking about the impact regulation has kind of had, or I guess more broadly, this kind of pivot to privacy has had on the market. Where would you say has been like the kind of some of the harder hit? sort of areas. I know there was a lot of talk about location ad vendors, um, ad tech vendors, like Circa when GDPR was happening around 2018, when you had the likes of Ground Truth and Verb um, kind of fading away. And I guess DMPs kind of got caught up in that to some degree when the market started to, to your earlier point, move away from third party kind of data as well. 
I think it was the the first kind of forcing function that made folks look at their data assets and understand things like, well, wait a minute, I need to know where this originated, if it was, uh, you know, if the user actually consented and understood that this was the the use for this particular data point. And when a lot of companies did that analysis on the data that they've agglomerated, they made a business decision realizing that maybe that data is not that high quality, certainly vis-a-vis consent, and maybe it's just easier to shut down operations in particular regions um, and divest than to you know, try to fix the underlying data set. Um, and I think that's what led to a lot of those kinds of decisions where you would read about some platform pulling out from a particular region or similar. What that created was the opportunity for newer technologies who were built with uh, privacy preservation as their foundation to enter the market and to then fill that gap, assuming that you know advertisers still wanted to have some ability to target uh, customers and so there, there's a rejuvenation happening yeah. now that that I think is is largely positive. Do you think that kind of death and rejuvenation cycle will kind of will, will recirculate? I guess like next year as third party, you know, the beginning of the end of third party kind of cookies in Chrome, and then kind of more broadly with everything that's happening around sort of email addresses, mobile IDs, potentially IP addresses kind of further down the line as well when it comes to CTV. Yeah, I, I think yeah, okay. we, we have a thesis that basically tracks these cycles in ad tech in about seven-year increments or so. So we're just coming up on the next seven-year <laughs> increment next year. So the Google's very much on track there. Um, and I, I think, you know, it it is following the general evolution of advertising. Like when you think about it, with so much money and attention spent on particular activation types, at some point you just hit a plateau where consumers are just less receptive to the message that you're delivering because they hear thousands of similar sounding messages. And so I I think it's good that we get to reevaluate what signals we have of somebody's intent to to buy something or somebody's interest in a particular area. And that's what's being forced now through these technological changes. Um, What gives me pause is this approach that we're heading towards seems to, again, benefit the folks who have access to the most touch points, and that's your your Googles and your Apples and the um, Amazons of the world where you're constantly logged in. You're, you're always, it's always on your mobile phone. They'll always know where you are. And I don't mean this in a ooh, scary kind of um, scenario. My, my long-running uh gripe with this industry is that why isn't the advertising experience better on platforms that do have that much information? Like, you know, why am I seeing ads for men's shoes, which I've never bought in my life and never will, um, but given that that I'm, you know, syndicating all of this, this data out? 
Um, but I, I think it's it's going to undoubtedly benefit incumbents in the next era. And I think it's kind of up to the rest of the ecosystem, predominantly buyers, to be the ones who say, well, you know, maybe I don't want to have just three places where I can place my advertising. Maybe I want a more vibrant ecosystem. And here's how I'm going to put my advertising dollars towards that. I, I can dream about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's what I was gonna that's what I was gonna get at. like I guess the cynic in me feels like we've kind of been here before but I mm -hmm. guess like I wonder if you're starting to see kind of any signs of of kind of hope you know particularly when it comes to you know privacy kind of sandbox you know as we enter 2014 obviously there are kind of big question marks over that but do you get the sense that you know, kind of bias, but I guess also more broadly, other kind of stakeholders in the industry are kind of aware of, you know, the kind of scale of the task ahead of them, but then also like the subsequent implications of, you know, what Google is kind of doing, which I think is essentially kind of tying the ad industry's fate to the to the Chrome browser. Look, I thought we were gonna go for non bleak. <laughs> like, I tried. I did try. I did try. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, to to be fair, I don't think the situation is bleak at all. I, I think mm. when you have this level of a f fundamental reimagining of yeah. what the underlying technology looks like, there's just so much opportunity. What I was hoping would happen by now that hasn't really happened to the extent that that um, I would have liked it to, was that buyers would be more active and more, uh, you know, speaking more openly about what are the parts of advertising that excite them. Where I think we have a mismatch is, you know, you pick your um, favorite CMO from a Fortune 500 company and they have a really tough job. On the one hand, they have to re-plumb. Um, I'm stealing that from, from Samantha Jacobson from the Trade Desk, because she had a great article where uh, she, she, she mentioned that we're re-plumbing the, the industry, and it just stuck in my head. It's such a good term <laughs> um, that you know they, they have to re-plumb their entire stacks to continue demonstrating that they are doing well vis-a-vis -vis customer acquisition, vis-a-vis -vis, like people are actually buying what it is they're selling. And so they are being held to all of these metrics from the past that they have to hit this year, next year, as they're building and, and talking about this advertising system in the future. And I mean, you know, that's not an easy position to be in on a good day and they're dealing with the perennial shortest tenure in the C-suite and they don't have a lot of time to actually do these um, transformational projects in any given role before they're, you know, shown the door. So, so there's a, I think there's a, a mismatch between where CMOs need to take us and people who control the purse strings and the reality of their day-to-day -day responsibility towards their boards, their shareholders, their shorter-term goals that, that they need to hit. Um, when it comes to next year, I see still a lot of folks 
kind of go, well, they're not really going to switch off cookies, <laughs> are they? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. this, this, at least once a week, I have a conversation with somebody who's like, oh, they're not really going to do that, aren't they? That sounds <laughs> a little, uh, you know, extreme. I'm like, have you not been paying attention <laughs> yeah. for the last several years? Like, you know, wh- wh- what do you read? Where where do you hide, kind of? Um, and, um, you know, I think for... So many people, the reality of no third-party cookies is already there. This is just the last and final straw. <laughs> well, I mean, Chrome's not oftentimes referred to as the last and final straw, but uh, but in reality, that's that's what it is. So we've, you know, the marketplace has largely moved on <laughs> from cookies. It's just this this remaining large ecosystem that also needs to to pull the trigger on them. And, uh, you know, if I had a, a dollar for every time I heard the, oh, they're not really going to do that, are they? I, we could be having this conversation in a, you know, nice island bar somewhere or someplace like that. So <laughs> maybe, maybe we should do that next time. That'd yeah, be, yeah, next time. That'd be an upgrade. <laughs> so much more optimistic note than, than I sort of came over and honest. So thank you. Like, for like, yeah, that makes, makes more sense. Okay, well... I think that almost takes us up to our allotted time. And uh, thank you very much, uh, Anna, for your uh, being so generous with your knowledge. Perhaps you could just close us out um, by perhaps giving the industry a scorecard on how it's doing with privacy at this critical juncture of um, we've got 12 months left until the end of the third party cookie. Well, according to some. Uh, <laughs> those may not hope. So how about if you work with me here, uh, how about we go from a scorecard of, say, one to five on, um, say, the ad industry's awareness of uh, the obligations it has under the laws, such as GDPR and CCPA and the other dozen or so that are, that are statewide in North America. Um, what do you think... Uh, what would be your assessment there? A score one through five. Is is one like the best or the worst? Oh, uh, five's the best. Five is okay. Yeah, yeah sorry, my bad. Um, oh, awareness wise, and this is going to vary greatly regionally. I think if you speak to senior executives in uh, who, who handle Europe they'll score much higher here and, you know, kind of going through different regions gives you a different perspective here. But overall, I would rank us fairly low here. I would say maybe a two. And um, that's largely because it doesn't seem real and it hasn't seemed real for a really long time or it's somebody else's problem. Like, oh, I have a compliance department and my general counsel is in charge of that. I don't really care. And that's the wrong mental model because to truly transition to the the advertising ecosystem we'll have starting next year, every part, every person who touches design and builds things in advertising needs to understand how to build with privacy in mind and and have the privacy layer first. So in the US market, I think we made that mistake of carving out compliance and privacy as kind of a separate animal. And we didn't really integrate that um, into regular operations as, as uh, quickly as we should have. So very low too. Okay. 
well, I guess the next criteria is going to be somebody quite low. Alignment with consumer expectations. Oh, yes. Can I like give us a zero here? <laughs> okay, zero? Okay, I think well, zero speaks for itself. It, yes, it, it, I, and I think consumers in general have largely been missing from this conversation. Like, you know, you, you said it yourself, it was like the, the whole reason we have CCPA, which kicked off privacy legislation in the U.S., was because of a dinner party where somebody got really spooked at all of the stuff that's being collected. And, um, you know, I think that consumers, especially in the, the largest market here in the U.S., are just blissfully unaware of um, privacy implications at all. So, yeah, we are very far apart there from what consumers might deem okay. Okay. Uh, well, then, I'm guessing <laughs> the, la- the final criteria is going to be similarly low. Longevity. How well can the industry adapt to the needs of uh, upcoming legislation? Now, I know that's a little bit difficult, you know, mm-hmm. by its very nature to think, but how well do you think they can anticipate the requirements they will have under the, the likely requirements they will have under the law? You know, that's a, a really good question. And I'm actually going to be more optimistic here. Like I would put us at a three, maybe. Oh, wow. We really scored really low here. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and that's mostly because I see this wave of legislation as being incredibly reactive and, you know, solving several year, problems from several years ago. And um, so I, I hope it'll become obsolete. What I also hope won't happen is that we keep going down this path of state level uh, legislation and every little fiefdom having its own rules that, um, you know, is, are going to effectively fracture the common U.S. market. So I think this changes pretty drastically the moment we have some federal level legislation. There's a draft, there's some movement on on that front, but that can fix the longevity question here pretty effectively. Okay, okay. So an Uh, optimistic three. (laughs) Okay, an optimistic three. All right. In spite of my ratings, just ending on an optimistic note. And I, I want to uh, say a couple of things. I, I know this is the last in our series or in your series of um, ad tech history. I, I think we're very fortunate as an industry to have folks who have been reporting on this industry and its many trials and tribulations for such a long time as, as you and Sab and the rest of the Digiday crew have been. And that we're able to do these oral histories like this. I, I This is not lost on me as, as a nerd who likes to understand how we got to a particular place in the industry. This is not common for other industries. So I want to thank you for doing projects like these. Uh, and, you know, I, I learn a lot from people I've known for years, if not decades, through projects like these as well. And it's really, really nice to kind of and really possible to be optimistic about an industry when you understand that everybody involved in it really, really deeply cares about it. So, so thank you. Uh, thank you for helping us put it together. Oh, yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Same here. Thank you, Anna. Thank you so much for listening to DigiDay's History of Ad Tech, a special four-part series from the DigiDay podcast. This was our final episode. We want to thank all of our guests, Brian O'Kelly, Ari Paparo, 
Joanna O'Connell and Anna Milicevic. If you want to know even more about the disruption of the digital media space, visit digidea.com to read our complete oral history of AdTech. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe if you haven't already, because every Tuesday we have our regular scheduled Digiday podcast hosted by Katie Barber and Kimiko McCoy. Thanks again for listening and have a happy new year.